We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. We are pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Bergeau back to Encountering Silence. One of the leading contemplative writers of our time, Cynthia is an Episcopal priest, as well as an internationally known retreat leader. Her many books include Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, The Heart of Centering Prayer, Love is Stronger Than Death, and The Wisdom Jesus. Her latest book, Eye of the Heart, A Spiritual Journey into the Imaginal Realm, published on September 8th of this year. She also recently contributed the introduction and commentary to a new edition of The Mystery of Death, Awakening to Eternal Life by the Jesuit Ladislas Boros. Cynthia Brigeau divides her time between solitude at her seaside hermitage in Maine and a demanding schedule as a speaker, teacher, and retreat director working to support the recovery of the contemplative and wisdom traditions in our time. Cynthia, welcome back to Encountering Silence. Thank you very much, Carl. Good to be back. So how are you and how is your relationship to silence in these interesting days we find ourselves in? Well, I'm good. Uh, I'm one of the lucky ones. Logistically, I live out here on the very rim of planet Earth, more in the water than on the land, right in the northeastern corner of Maine, uh, our most northeastern state. Uh, and uh, it's, it's reasonably normal here. I can breathe a lot of fresh air, sail my boats around, and basically live uh, uh, with a lot more... Uh, uh, silence around me, both inward and outward, than I know is the privilege of many people today. So I, I try to live that consciously and, and, and gratefully and to share a little bit of what, uh, what's landed on my plate uh, with those whose circumstances are still much more crowded and stressed and, and, and noise pervaded. Uh, silence is good. You know, silence is as not only because of the external silence, which is really, really kind of uh, just all over the place here when the wind stops blowing. And uh, there's a there's one level of internal silence, which is really lucky for me, you know, uh, and I'm very grateful for it that I I still live on my own with relatively little stress. Uh, so I'm not one of the many in the planet who is having to educate kids at home or, uh, you know, wondering where the next paycheck is. There's a, there's a relative, a blessed absence of anxiety in my life right now, uh, which again, I receive uh, on behalf of the collective with great gratitude. And, and finally, there's this wonderful kind of dynamic dimension that uh, one of the little projects I've also got going, uh, even as we speak now, is I've been, uh, I've been doing some teaching work around my own teacher, Thomas Keating's final book, A Legacy of Poems, The Secret Embrace. 
And we've got a course running on that on spirituality and praxis right now with about a thousand people on it. But for Thomas at the end, silence had so far not been a back been a backdrop. It wasn't simply the empty space that you go into to get messages or to to hear something from God. Silence was itself a uh, an environment, a milieu, with with heft and force and color and dynam dynamism and movement. And and he he speaks in one of his poems about the silence being thunderous. And I understand a little bit about what he means when he speaks of the silence as thunderous. It, it comes at you with its own sort of uh, quiet symphonic resonance. And you, you begin to realize that it's not an absence of content, but it's content in its own language. So that's all good. And I, and I, I give particular thanks and blessings to my, my dearly beloved teacher uh, who took us all so far in his own work with the contemplative renewal and contemplative outreach toward, uh, toward recovering silence in the lives of people and helping us to value it differently. And, and uh, then at the very end of his own bodily life, uh, to leave us this extraordinary haiku-like gift uh, to sort of show us where silence could take us if you begin to follow, follow its Pied Piper call. Mm, I love that. The, the beckoning. It's beautiful. You, you spoke a little bit about into the year and into some of the challenges people are facing and what a year it's been with pandemic, with racial injustice and other challenges of this year. Has that impacted your personal contemplative practice at all? Yeah. Not in the sense of uh, making it less secure in a kind of funny way of making it sort of more uh more feisty and you mm. might call it plucky that i've i've become increasingly aware of the collective and prophetic dimension of it i've been one of the ones that haven't been content to to just zoom into everything that that my own my own work has been to uh to to really see more and more deeply certain aspects of of prayer and of silence and of devotional life that can only be conveyed on the ground and since on the ground is still a semi high risk place to be it's it's required me to double down even more into the the basic teachings on which silence and contemplative silence particularly in the christian path are based which is the absolute surrendered heart into uh, whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. So it's it's been a it's been a crash course for me and deepening courage and deepening standing your ground and a little bit about what happens to you when you get on the crosswise size of political correctness, not so much on the right but on the left. Interesting. I'm kind of curious as to would you be comfortable with talking a little bit about that? I think that over the course of time, and particularly in the 50 years or so that I've been actively walking on the spiritual path, uh, what I've seen in, uh, in American culture particularly is a growing investment in personal safety uh, as the, the highest of, of values. And, 
And as, as we've watched, this has sort of quietly snuck up and overtaken all the other values, uh, which uh, mostly begin on the other side of, a, of the understanding that there are things that are so important uh, in life uh, that, that dying into them is the gateway to eternal life. And I've seen this, this uh, protection at all costs of personal safety. Uh, I've, I've seen people say, uh, fully believing, we can't do the Eucharist, which is in fact not true. What's true is we won't do the Eucharist because our sense that it's dangerous outweighs our sense that it's trustworthy. And so this, this absolute maximization of the value of safety just saturates the viewpoint and the attitudes of the, of the left. Whenever you see a, a newspaper article in the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, uh, any of those that are the progressive things, it will always have a fear message built into it. You know, the latest and funniest ones was now we got to be afraid of toilets. Uh, now we got to be afraid of aerosols. Now we, but it's always coop up, get behind your mask, get get safe, protect yourself. And of course, it's never like protect myself. It's like protect your neighbor. Uh, but the 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 atmosphere of self protectiveness clings around us. And and I found that the the deeper virtues of what I call Paschal courage are getting a little bit eclipsed. And, and by Paschal courage, I don't mean that reckless courage that says God's on my side, therefore I won't die. I mean the kind of courage that Jesus held on to when he walked right onto the cross at Gethsemane, knowing full well that you may and probably will die, but that that, that is not the ultimate end of everything. So my deep sense has been uh, that as as we've seen this increase in, in, in personal safety and personal well-being and personal self-realization, which is a little bit the recent pedigree of the contemplative, contemplative reawakening. It really got started in the 70s or 80s when everybody was into self-realization. The divine therapy, which my teacher Thomas Keating developed was, that's, that's a personal therapeutic metaphor and everything was personal. Everything was all about me and everything about keep me safe, keep me well. Uh, and we've seen a commensurate uh, attrition of attendance in organized religions. Uh, we've, we've seen this more and more getting cooped up on the secular oasis, uh, trusting nothing, particularly not trusting anything beyond our own physical demise. And these are not the conditions in which Christianity can flourish. And so part of what's, what's uh, important for me in contemplative practice is that it, it forces you inescapably to push through that barrier uh, of your own uh, fear of your personal demise and begin to encounter what lies on the other side, which is, which is all the great mystical courages and, and redemption and paschal life that are implicit in us in particularly in our Christian faith as we step forward to it. So it's been a, it's been a really important journey, but as I, as I find it, I, my, my deepest disappointment, I think, during this year, and my deepest disillusionment, uh, if I could call it that, has been with the, the lack of 
full embracing and full trusting of the of the promise of Christ uh, in the presence of personal fear. And again, I'm not talking about reckless courage. I'm not talking about you will not die. I'm talking about, uh, you know, that cooped up in terror, you will not live. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a very complex, and we probably want to change the topic because this is a conversation you and I probably could have forever because this is complex. There's... um, there's so many layers here of subtlety of, I hear what you're saying. There's this, the, the, the lack of kenosis, the lack of, of self-emptying and letting go. There seems to be this wall that you want to build, which then stops you. But then there's the issue of, as you already mentioned in your answer, there's this, it's not reckless and it's not forgetting your neighbor and it's not just, hey, I'm willing to die. And, you know, so it's a very complicated question that I think people then want to fight and argue about politically. So and it's a complicated dance. And the, the two positions we have are both, uh, I think, uh, flawed. Yeah. And and real opportunity of Chris uh, of Christian mystical practice is to begin to envision a third. Mm. Uh, preserves the best in both and uh and in some senses steps beyond the inherent weaknesses and the biases from both sides mm-hmm. and uh and that's not done an awful lot in language that's done more sitting on the cushion uh as if your cushion was your spot in uh, at the heart of the earth uh you know right and that you sit there and just hold it like like jesus did in his three days in the tomb the conflict, the the fear, the the terror, the polarization, and just uh, consent, as you consent to the presence and action of God, uh, to consenting that this is what, uh, this is how the presence and action of God is manifesting in our own kind of fractured and frightened time, and to hold it tenderly and hopefully non-judgmentally. Mm. Thank you for that. Well. In, you know, talking about death, it, of course, makes me think of this book that you just contributed a new introduction to, The Mystery of Death, which uh, came out, what, uh, originally 50 or 60 years ago? Um, could you I tell think, a little bit of the story about that book and your relationship with it? Yeah, it, it was 1965 that the, the full book came out after a sort of initial run up for it from it in German in 1959. So Ladislas Boros uh, was a Hungarian uh, Jesuit. He fled from, uh, I think he fled from the Soviet invasion in in 1956, uh, found his way to another corner of of Europe, was educated, went through seminary, was priesthood, got a PhD, a bright rising star in the the Jesuit fold in the early 20th century, protege of the great Karl Rahner. And they... They put him in uh, in charge very, very early on of the the most uh, uh, blue chip of the of the journal of the European Jesuit periodicals called Orientierung, which was a great magazine of scholarly research and reflection. So, somewhere around the late fifties, uh, in that position, he got on to reading Teilhard de Chardin. And, and remember that uh, Teilhard had uh, died in 1955 and had died silenced by the Jesuit order. 
that that none of his books were allowed to be published, uh, none of his religious books. But uh, as soon as he died in 1955, that prohibition was lifted. Uh, at least uh, his 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 art, his heirs didn't care about it anymore, and they started cranking out the books. So Ladislaw started right reading them, and and obviously came across uh, some of the work which affected him very very deeply. Somewhere around 1959 or 60, he had this extraordinary mystical vision, which was in in one sense a direct answer to the to the question posed by Teilhard in his little book, The Divine Milieu, uh, saying, you know, does is can there be anything good in death? Can there does death salvage anything, or is it total total loss, total waste? And Boros came back from this mystical vision with this resounding, yes, there can be much good in, in, uh, in death. And in the, the heat of fusion of what he saw, uh, inspired in a deep way by Teilhard, uh, he wrote in, almost in a white heat in about six weeks, the original draft of the mystery of death. And he lays out on this the rather interesting theory that, that rather than being a diminishment, Death is our first choice chance to make a really, really free ultimate choice, yay or nay, uh, yay life or nay life. And that a question is, you know, we are, we are in a judgment situation at our death, but it's we who judge, not God judging us. And we judge based on the basis of our life experience. If through all of our life we've learned in a way to surrender into and trust the unknown, then that pattern will be well habituated in us by the time of our death. And when the unknown reaches out to us in a whole new dimension, we can trust and say yes and, and flow with it. But if we've if we've learned in our life lesson, you know, to contract, to defend, to hold on to ourselves, the chances are that when that moment arrives, we will experience death indeed as a contraction and hang on like a stone in the river. So he develops this beautiful idea, which goes still farther mystically into that, and I won't go through all the steps, but that death is also the sacramental moment for the complete meeting with Christ. So he paints it in a way that's, that's, that's challenging, mystical, in a language that sort of is closer to scholastic language, the classic Jesuit, language he sounds he, he sounds like a, like a ronner duck you know in a teardian uh, you know yeah teardian suit you know well it's funny uh, you're saying that it sounds all ronnerian language of saying the ultimate yes and the choice yeah. and the mystery yeah it's very ronnerian in its form but there's a fire at the heart of it and an evolutionary fire that's totally Teilhard. And when he sees Jesus at the heart of the earth, he doesn't see it in some sort of innermost sanctum philo philosophically of everything that is. He sees the center of the geosphere and the two fuse in his mind. So he has a wonderful, it's a marvelous mystical book. I, I read it in like 1978 or so. It came to me by some way I don't know and just gulped it down. It absolutely galvanized my then young theological imagination. And when I got out to spend my, my life-changing two years at the monastery at Snomass, working with my teacher, Brother Rafe, he had it too. 
And we discovered that we had both absolutely cut our mystical teeth on this book and that we, we saw it eye to eye. And so when I found out it was going out of print and then went out of print, I realized this was quickly unacceptable uh, and that something had to be done about it. But there began the trouble, uh, problem of trying to get anything done about it. Uh, the Jesuits were not about to republish Ladislas Boros because he had become in the course of time a, a black sheep. Uh, the same thing that, the same mystical burst that carried him to this, this wonderful understanding of, uh, of, of, of death as a sacramental situation in the bosom of Christ uh, also touched off some fire in his life that set him in motion to leave the church uh, or leave, leave the priesthood, get married, become laicized, have four children. And then he died uh, in uh, early on at the age of only 54 with some personal difficulties attending. So he was quickly dropped. Uh, and of course, his, his great mentor and visionary, Teilhard de Chardin, has not been fully reclaimed as one of the Jesuits' own yet. So nobody was going to touch it. And uh, finally, uh, the, the person who touched it was my, my dear friend and, and courageous publisher, uh, Paul Cohen at Monkfish Books and Monkfish Publications. And Paul has been systematically getting back into print uh, classics that are needed on the spiritual path because they're needed. So Paul and I collaborated. I put together a new, lengthy new introduction to it, which is more a commentary than an introduction. Paul published it. And uh, it's, it's really a wonderful book to have in place as the pandemic hits because I, I think that when push comes to shove, our own personal and collective fear of death is what's holding us on one side of the divide. And if we could just get through that, we'd have a whole new set of tools in our grab bag for rebuilding the planet on the other side of COVID. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. And to be more specific about what we can do now, how to be in that, how to break through into that, what would you say that one of the, one or some of the issues might be, is that lack of embodiment, lack of a willingness to um, practice, to see, how would you describe how one could potentially have that breakthrough in life and let go of that contraction you speak of? Well, I think there's two aspects to this. And one has been there in the centering prayer path all along. Uh, and the other has been gaining uh, prominence recently in the new age and, uh, and led forward beautifully by a lot of the, the, the younger practitioners. So the first part of this is the surrender attitude. And, and 
Thomas developed that about as perfectly as it possibly can be articulated. Thomas Burton, uh, Burton, Thomas Keating, uh, they, they flow together as one Thomas dream. <laughs> but Thomas's beautiful articulation that, that centering prayer was consent to the presence and action of God. And that what you're doing every time you let go of a thought and just open the gates for an undifferentiated silence is that you're in as many way practicing handing over, handing your life over into God, into the beloved, uh, taking your hands off the tiller of your own life. And so we practice this over and over and over. And as you work in centering prayer, it does build trust you do begin to see that there's something out there that receives you as you make this sort of mini self-donation prayer period by prayer period. And, and you begin to see that that way leads. You begin to see that the, the efforts towards contraction and saving your skin always wind up uh, you know, costing more than they gain. So that's the first part. I think the other part that has come more and more online and that our our monastic forebears who gave us this prayer did not sufficiently emphasize is the whole embodiment piece. And so much of the teaching, even when I was first learning centering prayer was around the goal is to make the body neutral so that it doesn't get in the way. And uh, I very much appreciate Eckhart uh, Tolle in The Power of Now, that now classic book, who firmly blew the whistle on that. He says, show me one place where enlightenment has ever happened outside of the body. You know, mm. we, we sit in our physical bodies and granted there's an inner body inside the outer body. And, and while we're in our outer body, they're joined at the hip. But the outer body is a not only a vehicle, but an active participant and can actually teach us things and connect in ways that, uh, that we can't do otherwise. And that's what we discovered so powerfully as we've been venturing out into on the ground retreats and wisdom schools, that, that there's a, a level of, of assurance that first of all goes straight down deep into the earth from our toes and our, our legs and our root chakra right down into the earth. And there's another that goes body to body that's, that's conveyed when the, the atmosphere is, you know, the additional three feet beyond our physical presence on either side touch. So I have been complimenting the present, the, the practice myself and with my wisdom students with some very, very demanding and, and wonderfully wrenching exercises that come out of the Gurdjieff work recently made available to people in a new book by a fellow named Joseph Aziz. And people have been working with these, which really sort of encourage and demand a, a fully embodied awareness, not only with your mind and your heart, but with your, your, your moving center, your, your whole embodied being. And I found, you know, to my great surprise, that the people that worked in this fashion quickly became fearless in the presence of COVID. And again, I don't mean that reckless kind of fear. It was just, it was, it was in a way the same sort of thing that happens when I, when I ask people to do prostrations for the first time 
at first their head jivers and says, no, 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 I'm not going to lie down on the floor. That's self-abnegation. I'm advertising. I'm not worthy. But when you actually take that prostrate position, prone on the floor, you discover something amazing. You discover that you're very stable and that the ground holds you up. You discover that you belong to something that you're not teetering on the edge of your feet all day, hoping you don't fall over. And so in the same way, the, the people that sunk down into their bodies discovered an intrinsic belongingness with the earth, uh, with, the, uh, with the biosphere, with the geosphere, with everything that creeps and crawls and lives and breathes in the, in the biosphere, including the little COVID viruses, that made the, the sense of belonging so strong that that sense of alienation and that being sort of a, a castle under siege by an enemy just disappeared. So, so people could move forward with more steadiness and more staidness. And I thought, oh, these are the gifts of the body. For this, Jesus had to take flesh because it's the only way we do it. And see, it's fascinating, too, because of what's interesting for me, your book, Eye of the Heart, the subtitle here about the imaginal realm. For me, it feels I'd like to ask a question about that, because correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm often wrong, but it feels like the imaginal realm, this is that space that connects with the body. So it's the it has this body component to it, that the body is more than the body, so to speak, and that the imaginal realm is kind of that doorway for that or the liminal space of that. It, 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 am I reading that correctly? Because that's how I've always interpreted the imaginal realm. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Or, Well, the, if, you start with the, if you start with the idea that I just sort of tried out in passing a couple of sentences ago, that, that in this realm, we have an outer body and we call that our body, you know, and it's, but inside every outer body is an inner body. And it's that which really gives life. Uh, the, you know, the image I love to use describing that is uh, comes from Isaac Dennison in her Out of Africa Tales. And she, she tells a story about once upon a time she was out in the bush and she saw this gorgeous snake, you know, slithering along. It's all purple and variegated and, and lovely and glistening. And she raved about that snake so much that, the, that her, one of her house servants killed the snake and made it up into a belt for her. And to her horror, it was, it was just dull and gray because all along the color and the pattern had, had lain not in the, in the skin, but in the life inside the skin. So the inner body, uh, which, is, which is really your body all along, uh, is, uh, is essentially your outer body in the imaginal realm. And the fact that the two of us, the two of them are joined at the hip during our time in this physical realm really sort of strongly gives us both our orientation and our, and our marching orders, that, that we are in a deep way here to weave the worlds together, the world of manifest form, as we would call it, and the world of a, a subtler and yet somehow more intense energetic validity, purity, that is real food for our outer world. And herein lies the rub. But 
when we live in our world of our outer body and, and we take our reality from that, when we are, you know, of the world and entirely defined by it, we miss that that inner body uh, contains nutrients both for our own life and for our planet because we, we just uh, pass them off as virtues, uh, you know, good qualities of the person. We don't see that they're actual finer embodied substances. So the imaginal realm is really a liminal zone, uh, an intertidal zone between the worlds of manifest form and subtle form. Another sort of way station on that continuum by which God, the unknowable, unmanifest, inaccessible light, takes form and being and substance and, and form and being and substance then hand themselves back up into the, all the way back up into the unknowable essence. So we're, we're part of that continuum and we as human beings occupy a very, very crucial, small but crucial niche on that continuum. Yeah. I mean, what it seems to me is what you're describing is what we in the West, I always talk about this a lot, is that we in the West, because of the way modernity developed, we lost. I mean, I teach philosophy. So you, you lose a lot of the stuff where what we used to talk about in ancient culture with no matter all the different cultures, there, there is that noetic realm, you know, Plato and everybody assumed there was something more about consciousness and the body that reached into invisible spaces, et cetera. And that was part of being human. And we bu yeah. built, built culture out of that and did all sorts of stuff. Modernity has this turn where on some level, it gives us these great gifts and we've had these wonderful insights, but it seems to close the door to this kind of transcendent thing that you're talking about. And so, yeah. so it seems to me that I'm very interested in the recovery of that noetic, that transcendent, that you're describing stuff that I hear in Tibetan Buddhism. You hear this in Hinduism with the astral body. All these cultures have the embodiment, the earthwork. Shamanism has this in all the African tribal stuff. It's there in all the human culture. It's just that I often wonder how we can talk about this because our culture will hear this language and will really use it to kind of retreat into that very thing that you were talking about at the beginning, almost use it, almost use transcendent stuff in a way to spiritual bypass, to kind of like hold the door up and say, hey, I'm doing stuff in the astral realm. You know, I mean, I, and and I'm like, well, hold on. It's Let's talk about how the, that's connected to real embodiment. And what's going on here? So don't disconnect them, you know? So it's, it's hard to talk about this because of people's lenses that they bring, you know? I don't know if you've, yeah. if you've discovered that as well, that you say this and then you feel like you're either being misunderstood or because of that lens, you know? Exactly. And the tragedy of the modern world, the modern postmodern secularism, is the, the, that we've vastly shrunk the size of the... Uh, of the planet that the human spirit and soul used to live on. Uh, and you're quite, quite right that the notion of some sort of chain of being, as it's conveniently called, uh, and interwebbed and interlocked realms of, of, of not only differing, but, but mutually bootstrapping densities is endemic to all the great traditions. The, the, the Asian traditions, the shamanic ones, you have it in Plato, you, the world, the word imaginal itself comes from the, you know, a, an English translation of the Islamic 
uh, version of this. But these, these more subtle realms were just assumed to exist because it was from these realms uh, that anything uh, could escape the, you know, the gravitational field uh, of human, um, you know, egoic self-preservation and self-interest. Uh, and we've lost it. We've devalued those as bunk. And so we have very, very little uh, to go on now to, to, we can't hitch our wagon to a star any greater than personal safety. It's a terrific loss. And, and ironically, our modern post-Einsteinian era makes the whole thing even more feasible to grasp. Because in the old maps where it was assumed uh, that sub there were two qualities there was sub there was there was matter and spirit uh, in substance ontology it's called and anything that was invisible is spirit and anything that's visible is matter and then from there you got that matter was dense coarse and all that sort of stuff those are the maps we've mostly learned but when einstein allowed us to see that everything is a gradient a gradient of energy from just the most subtle to the more coarse and that that matter is not a different ontology, it's not a whole different thing, but it simply is energy traveling slower. So the whole thing is a, is a continuum and it, and it makes it easier than it ever was before to picture uh, imaginal reality just as a more subtle and faster moving and therefore lighter and more diaphanous energetic bandwidth that can perfectly well co-inhere within uh, the, the denser forms uh, of the physical world. That for me is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, be in this world, but not of it. You know, that, that our home, uh, our spiritual home, our soul home is actually at a lighter density. And, and all the traditions up to our own, up to our own last 50 years, have not only held open that possibility, but have seen it as the place from which healing comes, from which human nobility comes. Because it's only when you can get in touch with those, those, those qualities, those assistances that emerge from virtues higher and realms finer than this planet, that we can move beyond self-protection and self-preservation and lies and acquisition and uh, you know all that kind of stuff and really grow up and behave like human beings not apex predators. It's, it's only from those realms that we can really not only believe, but see that death is not the end, that love is stronger than death, that the, that the living presence of Christ at the helm of all evolution is still well and good, and that we can get on that boat if we know how and don't lose our nerve. So I'd love to shift the conversation a little bit, but still speaking into this importance of embodiments. And a lot of people today are feeling a complication or a tension between urgency and importance. And it seems to me that oftentimes contemplative life can err on the side of silence and solitude instead of the meeting place for speaking um, and showing up. So how would you speak into the urgency of the moment when we know the temptation of, as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, the tranquilizing drug of gradualism that a lot of contemplative work does seem to point to. It seems to me that 
urgency can be embodied as a means of reaching for justice, justice and collective well-being. And how can one do that well or well enough to tend to our interior life without losing sight of the fierce urgency of now? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that you can take a take jump into in that wonderful pointed question you raise. Uh, you know, and I'd like to start with what may be a sort of side issue, which is to challenge the word urgency. And I think that precisely what the contemplative perspective does is it takes away urgency. That doesn't mean it takes away importance. One has to act and the timing has to be precise. It's, it's quite funny that in the, in the living school uh, symposium, which is going to take place right after this recording, we're all preaching on a passage in, in Esther where, where she's essentially told that this is the moment you, t you stand firm, you grab this moment because if you miss this doll, you know, it's going to be given to somebody else. The moment's gone. And timing is on us. But when you can act spaciously in an instantaneous now, you get a hugely different result than you get when you work with a sense that it's urgent because urgency makes you breathless, self-important and fearful. So it's like this must be done, it must be done now, it must be done with the force of a karate chop and it must be done out of absolute implacable stillness. And that's real contemplative practice. It's been a phony dualism all along, which is unfortunately honored more in the observance than in the breach, that contemplation and action are separate forks in the road. That's probably one of the most damaging misunderstandings that's ever been there. But it's there because people, people actually take that on as a lifestyle. I would say there is no such thing as a contemplative lifestyle. I disagree with my teacher, Thomas, Keeping on that. And when you turn it into a lifestyle, you get into trouble. Contemplation is not a path founded on gobs and gobs of silence in elite, still beautiful places with high, you know, real estate prices on it. That, that silence and contemplation is a way of learning how to, in a nanosecond, instantly, surrender your being entirely into God and then walk into the noise and fray with steel nerves or with, you know, with a quaking heart, but with steel nerves, you just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the author of the cloud of unknowing made it absolutely clear in the 14th century that you simply cannot separate contemplation and action because they are in each other. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode next week. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes, 
and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.